Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Herb, Tax Girl. I'm a tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers and tax practitioners like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. The family and I grabbed dinner last week at one of our favorite restaurants. And because of the pandemic, we're not out much and we wanted to make this one count. So my husband and I got cocktails, the kids got dessert. And when the bill came, I actually did a second take because I'm pretty familiar with the prices at this particular restaurant. It is one of our favorites, but it was high even for us. And that's a phenomenon that we're seeing a lot of right now. Everything is more expensive. It's inflation, it's supply chain, it's desire to make up lost revenue. There are a lot of reasons. And we're seeing this in the service sector too. After a long, hard tax year, many tax professionals are doing across the board price increases and cutting difficult clients. It may be good business sense for tax pros, but I've been wondering about what this means generally for the profession and for taxpayers. And to talk about this in a just kind of a big sense, I've invited Tony Novak to the show. Tony is a serial small business entrepreneur in the Philadelphia area. He operates a sole practitioner CPA firm, Steps from the Beach, at Money Island, New Jersey, that serves other entrepreneurs and investors. And Tony and I had exchanged tweets about this a little bit, and he's also written about some of the challenges to the profession right now. So thank you so much, Tony, for being on the show today. Thanks, Kelly. I'm glad to have the chance to maybe share a few things I've learned. I hear the same stories from so many practitioners, but it seems like mine was a little more dramatic and uh, perhaps more interesting, or at least maybe a little amusing. Yeah. So let's talk tax season and how we got here, and we can talk about the impact on the profession. And I would just kind of key this up for our listeners by saying that you and I had exchanged tweets on this, where one of the things actually that you had tweeted out, you said, you were seriously starting to wonder if small businesses, accounting firms taking new clients are going extinct. You were wondering about it because you need to be really picky and stay in niche to have a fair chance to survive. And I do think this is a theme that I'm hearing a lot, right? Like people are thinking about how to approach their practice and their clients. And does that mean raising prices? Does that mean cutting clients? So kind of lead us into this by telling us your story. Sure. It brings to mind that funny business uh, saying that we can lose money on every deal and make it up in volume. Well, you know, that's the small business accountant. We are just so busy handling the next call, email, appointment that we may not even notice that we're not profitable until the end of the year. And that was my story. I started a new CPA firm in New Jersey in late 2019, just before COVID basically shut us down. And of course, that rocked my business plan. And I was coming from perhaps one of the, the most affluent business communities in our area, mainline Philadelphia, down to really one of the poorest, the South Jersey, uh, Western Shore, Bay Shore. We are an area suffering economically. And uh, so the dramatic change was dramatic. And coincidentally, there was a book coming out about my transition. Uh, to that area. It came out that exact same month, November of 19. And I didn't know it because I wasn't bright enough to ask for uh, preview rights, but the author had interviewed my family, my clients, my business associates, the guys I had coffee with, and they 
strongly said Tony had made a life mistake in changing his practice <laughs> and going down. So you know, when you read that in a book, it's actually right. out by a major publisher. And, you know, it's pretty, it gives me a shakeup. Right. The point is, though, that this, this was a choice. This was my choice. I'm comfortable with it. This is what I wanted to do after having gone through, you know, certain life stage. And I, so it was a choice I made and, and I would have worked through and lived with. But I noticed right from the beginning that solo practitioner accountants do not get training in pricing. I mean, we have so much CP, there's so much material out there. You would think that there would be plenty of material in pricing. But the fact is, you know, our industry discourages us. In fact, prohibits us in some, some cases online and whatnot from talking about pricing. So I did not have uh, good advice or coaching or good information on what other firms and other accountants were pricing. And that's true also in the law firm realm as well. This is, I think, professional services generally has this same struggle, right? So because as you're saying this, I am nodding my head. I completely agree. My law firm, when we started out, I carried over my billable rate from the firm I was at before. You know, there's no, as you pointed out, there's no course on how to do this. And you're not allowed to say things like on Twitter, like, hey, what do you guys charge per hour? Or what do you guys charge for a return? Because there may be ethical and other advertising considerations. So that's a huge, I think that's a huge obstacle and, and a great point to make. And in my case, it was amplified by the fact that I was coming from a essentially a commission-based industry, employee benefits field, in, so where if I, if I underpriced a, a fee engagement, no big deal. It was made up by the commission. Then going into an entirely fee-based arrangement, it amplified those mistakes. And uh, I've been using, if I can, I, I've been using this little, little example of, of how I made these mistakes. So when I talk with you know, my coaches and, and advisors, if I took on three clients last year, let's say in this uh, pandemic environment, and one of them looked at, looked at the work, analyzed it, figured out what I needed to make, figured out what was a fair price, analyzed the market, set the price, everything went perfectly smooth. Fee paid, client happy. I'm blessed to have wonderful reviews and endorsements and, and Google reviews and those kinds of things. So everything went you know, swimmingly well. Mm -hmm. Second client, and I opted to take on a lot of nonprofit work down here because, frankly, we need it. Also, engagement went fantastically well. Rave reviews, uh, endorsements, champagne breaking, but the funding was based on, on, on government grants, which in many cases did not come. So even though the engagement was signed, the invoice was sent, proved the fact is that the cash did not come. And I have a handful of nonprofits that basically have to suspend operations, lay off employees, and and just waiting for federal funds, and that's uh, sometimes far outside our our scope. I don't know whether that's a regional thing or whether it's national, but South Jersey is still waiting for any type of COVID or, or recovery. Oh, many states are, I think, having that yeah. same problem. Yeah. yeah. So that's two clients, and that's what say I took a third one, and the third one didn't work out so well. We started off, set a monthly fee, as I often you know, do, and the uh, client gets frustrated, stops the fee, doesn't pay, and then threatens to sue me. And then I have to go, and because he's basically frustrated with uh, the business climate or SPA or whatever, and then I have to devote way more time into fixing that or just for defensive purposes. And so then I have the expense of client A, client B, client C, and only one of them actually paid 
And so I look at my total firm costs at the end of last year, it's A plus B plus C, and who's got to pay for it? I only have one source to cover my expenses, and that's got to be A. So that means I have to go back and set my fee so that A can cover the entire uh, firm expenses. And that was a real shocking eye-opener for me. And not doing that put me in, in trouble. So I've had to make some dramatic changes. It's not just about money. You know, I'm, I'm 61 years old. I'm fortunate to have, you know, be healthy, athletic past and all that. But the fact is that business stress affects your health, affects your life, affects your marriage, affects your family. You know, and, and I have two other businesses that are still shut down, a marine and a seafood company. All of that adds up. You cannot live if you're under uh, sustained uh, stress like that. I wound oh, up with a high blood pressure issue. Yeah, it's, it just, you know, just couldn't do it. So I was so, I was forced to, I had no choice. I couldn't say, okay, well, I'll do better on the next client. I'll price the next. No, I had to come back and dramatically change the entire business model. And that's sort of what led to some of the online discussion, the tweets that you picked up. And I will also say that your story is not something that I haven't heard from other tax professionals. Like you're echoing what I'm hearing a lot of, especially like on the stress side. I have, uh, two folks that I have uh, known for quite some time, one of which was very vocal on Twitter about this, the other was not, but that landed in the hospital during COVID, not COVID-related, but stress-related. Because, you know, it's funny, I think that there's some branding and some commercials out there that we sometimes joke about on Twitter that talk about how anybody can do taxes, right? Like, it's this idea that everybody can just pick it up, but you can't. And as the professional, there's a lot of pressure on you to do your very best work for the clients. And it is difficult because, as you said, this is not the same as the utility bill, right? Like the utility bill comes every month. It's basically the same amount and people know they have to pay it or else. For tax prep, for some even small businesses, a lot of them consider it discretionary, even if they really need it. They consider it discretionary. It's not the same as rent or utilities. And so I do think that adds an extra layer because there are people who may be price shopping. Sometimes it's not price shopping so much as like refund shopping or deduction shopping, right? Like they're looking for the person who's going to echo back to them the advice that they want to hear rather than maybe the advice that they need to hear. So I do think that the kinds of things you're talking about, especially when you talk about like the stress that it can bring to tax professionals, especially those that work with small businesses and especially those who are working with small businesses during the pandemic, I don't think you can, can overstate it. I think that the we've talked to, on the program a, a few times before about what the toll that this is taking on people. And it's kind of become a punchline a little bit, but it really is a, it's a real thing. It is, as you mentioned, like the financial stress, the, the physical stress. And, and on the financial stress, I completely understand. You know, I ran, um, my husband and I had a law firm together uh, that we started very early on after we decided that we didn't want to be at the firms that we were at. And I remember, you know, when the client doesn't pay, especially early on when you haven't learned some of the lessons that <laughs> you were talking about learning, you know, it's it's hard to figure out what to do next. And in our case, we we were in a small community. We were actually in the Roxburgh Maniunk area of Philadelphia. So fo- folks who know Philly know that area. And we targeted a lot of small businesses that were middle class. And I felt like that 
area in general wasn't getting the uh, the representation that they needed. Um, I didn't think that that we were being really targeted, especially in Philly, where the big firms were going after you know the multinational companies and the small firms sometimes got left out in the cold. And uh, we had you, you mentioned nonprofits. We were stiffed by for profits sometimes for a whole lot of money early on. And I remember our banker actually telling us he walked by us at a party. And I've told this story before, but he walked by us at a party and said, cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. And I've always remembered that because we had a lot of clients. We had a lot of billables. Sometimes they didn't pay. And when that happens, it can set off a whole chain of events. Yes, absolutely. So you mentioned, so we left about the, uh, the physical thing. So for me, it was fairly easy for me to resolve to cut my hours in half. That was my goal. Cut my desk hours in half. And I knew that I could had to do that for my own sake. But we're accountants. When you crunch the numbers on that, what does that do to our billable rates? What does that do to the remainder? It's a multiplier effect there. And when I did the math, I came up with, and I think I, I've been talking about this online, I had to triple my rates. And for small business clients and nonprofits, that was earth-shaking. And I had a really, really tough time uh, in, in turn because that was against my values. I had brought these uh, the clients to this point. I felt like I owed them. I had given an expectation. I really, really struggled with that. And uh, I mentioned that I had some great coaching from three key people who stuck with me literally for months while I went through this. And finally, I had to come to the conclusion that you know we have to look out for ourselves first. If my business is unsustainable, I'm doing absolutely no good for your business. So uh, I came to that, and the coaching I got was to was to say, stop, pause, and let's have a conversation. And that's what I'm doing right now with my clients. The work overload is phenomenal. I don't know how many weeks I'm backed up, more than I've ever been in my life. But rather than dive into the work, I'm saying, let's talk. Let's find out what are your priorities? Where is this relationship going? What do we expect? And uh, I added, I spent a significant amount of time building up my own coaching skills, going through training in that area, because, uh, you know, just as, as a sidetrack, you mentioned about the clients in, in Roxborough. I had a few there. And what I, what I noticed, a lot of business owners suffer from whether it's lack of focus, emotional stress, the same things we're talking about. They're having trouble dealing with it. So it's not a numbers thing. It mm-hmm. is a a focus thing. They do need at least as much coaching help as they need accounting help. And when we look at tax clients, if we have a problem tax client, it's not because they don't know how to write a check to pay their taxes. It's because they have other things in their life, mental health, stress, whatever. They need uh, those other skills. So I focused on them and that's really working out well. I expected as, uh, uh, as soon as uh, perhaps tomorrow, I will be uh, certified in uh, coaching, International Coaching Federation certification. And so I really think that that's not that I intend to drop uh, tax accounting and go into coaching, but it is necessary when you're dealing with the small business market because they're facing tremendous stress and pressures right now. Oh, absolutely. And then what you mentioned about the numbers, I do think that I think that's a really great point that sometimes we overlook, you know, when a, when a business isn't doing well, the automatic thought is that it all comes down to the money. But there are so many things that can go wrong. I've had clients who, and I've talked about this um, many times before, that wouldn't open their mail because they were just scared 
And if something came from a tax authority, didn't open it, even if it was something that could have been resolved really easily. And so those things became bigger than they were. And sometimes that lack of attention because of the fear or because of their schedule or whatever, also it made the problem worse. They missed the deadline for appeal or they, you know, again, it's something that could have been fixed or they didn't know what to do. So they just sat on it until they get a notice of levy or or something like that. So I agree. I think that, you know, we like to think of taxes as, or we don't like, in the profession we understand, but I think sometimes out in the world, they portray taxes and tax season as one form once a year, right? Right. And it's bigger than that. You mentioned Roxborough many, and that's what made me go off on that little tangent. I'm thinking of one client who is a landlord up in uh, Roxborough, Maniunk, and with severe ADD, phenomenally successful, wealthy person, but severe ADD. So in order to really help him, and he's, he's thrilled, he wrote a phenomenal recommendation on uh, Google reviews I happen to have seen just recently. To help him, I really had to learn how to deal with somebody with ADD. You know, mm-hmm. they don't teach you that in CPA school. That's a completely different skill. But there was no way that he was going to get his tax situation straightened out without delving into those issues. And he, I have to deal with him completely differently than I might deal with somebody else who makes decisions in a different way. So uh, that's really what's made the difference. In my case, and frankly, I, I could increase my fee tenfold and, and he would he'd be still thrilled because the fact is that he ran, he had so many problems and so many uh, accountants, the serial problems, and now we're handling it. And, uh, he's thrilled to death. So uh, that's the kind of thing that I really think is making a difference. And if I may, I'll add one other thing that I'm doing for clients like him, matter of fact, for all of my clients, mm-hmm. and I think you brought it up earlier, I am adding recorded video presentations for oh, them. Uh-huh. Right. So they don't, so if we talk today about your taxes, you don't have to be focused. You can be distracted. You can come back to it later. I'm making it really, really easy that with circles on a big thing, this is the number that's on your 1120, and this is the number that's carried over, and this is what we have to look out for later in the year. And, and you can imagine that serves a number of, of good purposes. One is it, it covers my tail. Mm-hmm. Two is it lets the client go back and review at their pace and uh, on their schedule so they don't need to schedule a call and be attentive and be focused. And uh, I really think that that's an area that's adding value. And the last thing is, you're significantly younger than I am, so you don't have to worry about this yet. But as you get older, your own memory isn't so good. So I don't necessarily remember what, even though I would take notes, of course, I don't remember the entire client picture. And recording a 90-second video is an excellent way to uh, overview an entire account, a history and, and, and financial strategy. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of really interesting and innovative uses of technology lately that are really, really great for both for small businesses and for practitioners. And the video review is something I'm seeing more of, especially again, in a pandemic, it's great because you don't have to necessarily be in the same room together. So it has a lot of uses. It's really interesting, actually, though, what you mentioned, because um, I even before people started doing video, one of the things, you know, I'm a writer, so I, maybe it's easier for me on some level because I'm already kind of trained to think this way. But when I would speak with clients, one of the things I would say very early on is I would always see somebody like scrambling to take notes. And I'd always say, I'm going to put all of this in a letter and send it to you after our meeting. 
And I do that a lot to people because I do think that you can tell, and it's the same thing that you're mentioning, why the video is useful. You can tell that folks are kind of struggling with how much of this am I, do I need to pay attention to in the moment so that I can digest it? And how much of it do I need to remember? And I think if you just take that stress of having to remember the conversation away from the client, it's really valuable. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think also, I think a big topic of discussion online and text Twitter is you know, how we're communicating with clients. It used to be if maybe you set an appointment uh, for next month and you came in and sat across the desk, but that's, you know, that's not real life anymore. It's, uh, it's text messages in the, in the evening when, uh, when it annoys your wife and, and emails that, that are expected to be answered right away. And, and uh, managing those communications into a system that we can call professional, whether that's a client management system or some type of record keeping, is a significant challenge for, I think, for all of us, I assume. Yeah, no, I, th- I think especially managing expectations is, is a huge part of running a practice. And then I think it's good for both. It's not just good for you. It's good for the client to understand, like, I promise I will get back to you within this amount of time. Because you don't want them wondering, am I getting my taxes today? Am I getting them tomorrow? Am I getting them next week? Like, I think setting expectations allows you to take the appropriate amount of time that you need as a practitioner to do the work. And then also lets the, you know, the client know when to expect a return call, a return text. Because we do have this weird, I'm saying weird, I don't really mean it so much. It's not, it's not that it's weird, but we do have a society right now that expects because we do have texts and we do have email, um, they do expect immediacy and replies, right? And so, you know, it's the whole joke about three dots, right? Like you're looking at mm-hmm. your phone and you see the three dots and you're like, oh, they're they're answering, they're answering. But not every question needs to be answered immediately. And uh, I think that's something that you do have to train yourself and then also train your, your, your businesses or your clients generally. And I think there's value in that because um, one of the things I try to communicate to my clients is that I do have priorities. And if I prioritize something over you right now, it's because it's time sensitive and perhaps, you know, along the lines of what I, we kind of joke about tax emergencies, but you know, a tax emergency. And I would give you that same consideration if you were in that position. So when you have a problem, I am willing to move you ahead of the next person in, in the order of priorities. And I want my clients to understand that it's not, you know, this isn't first in, first out, right? It is what is the most important thing on my plate today? And how am I going to address it? And I want my clients to understand that I make them a priority when it's their turn. And then I make other clients a priority when it's their turn. Yes. Kelly, if we have time, I have a tool that's working great along that line that I've been sharing with a few others. So in my case, a couple of years ago, I split my engagement agreement into two parts. Mm -hmm. So one is a generic engagement agreement. It starts out with a section on communication, secure communication, unsecure communication, your preferences, and going into that. And I'm calling that a best practices uh, agreement. So and I'm just by email and I ask them to look at it. We can discuss it, but I ask them to acknowledge it electronically sign it. Then second, again, I guess it comes from my background in uh, working with contractors, is called the, the work plan. So the engagement agreement has the best practices portion, has no details about what's expected, what the fees are, what the work schedule is, and what the expectation. I'm separating all that into a work plan. And you mentioned earlier, you said, with the client, I'm going to send you a letter later with all the, 
that's what that is. It's, you know, one, two, three, four, five, you're going to do this, I'm going to do that, in what order. But the more, most valuable part of that is almost daily now, based on telephone messages, texts, and emails, I'm sending change of work plan emails, confirming a conversation yesterday, changing the work plan. We're, we're doing this first, that later, and this, and the fee's going to change. And so that, that one little trick is working out so well for me because people seem to be familiar with that concept. If they've hired a contractor to redo their kitchen, they know they're familiar with the concept that work plans change and we need to change with them. Of course, we want to confirm it in writing and clients seem to respect that and understand that. So I would say that's working right now for me as a best practice tool right now. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense because people don't like surprises, right? Like other than on your birthday, but like people don't like surprises. <laughs> they don't want to know a week after the plan has changed that it's changed. They don't want to know when they get the bill that it's more expensive. Like they want to know as they go along. And I've always found that a lot of unhappy clients, whether it's people who have come to me from someone that didn't gel with, you know, before, or even, you know, my own clients sometimes like, you know, especially early on communicating to them what the plan is and what might change is really important, especially when you're dealing with something like tax that, you know, there's a lot of tax that's subjective. Obviously we have, you know, a lot of tax statutes that you can look at and say, this is the way things happen. But like when you submit a request to IRS for a penalty abatement or you petition the tax court, that's not a certain outcome, right? Like there's all kinds of things that could happen. You might settle. It might not go to court and uh, might not end up at tax court. You might settle with the IRS, in which case it's a lot less work for the uh, the attorney or the, the tax professional. So, you know, maybe not as expensive, but then the opposite could also happen, right? Like you could have a bad result in tax court and need to appeal. So I do think it's really important to stress that this is what's happening. I also think that's why flat fees can be challenging for the tax profession. There's been a lot of discussion online about, do you do an hourly rate? Do you do flat fee? And I know that there are people who do one way or the other, and then people that kind of put them, use both depending on the, the situation. And I do think that that is one of the reasons and one of the ways that we I've seen people deal with it over the years. And one of the things we've tried to do is to start quoting people in stages I think it's also easier for taxpayers to understand, you know, okay, so you have a tax dispute. Here's how we're going to handle it to start. Depending on the outcome, we'll do something else next, right? And then you quote your both your fee and your time kind of based on these, these chunks, like what's going to happen. Let's hit stage one, see what happens. Because I do think that's where a lot of people get really unhappy with tax professionals. You see a lot of Folks who will, for example, tax resolutions will say, we'll resolve your bill for $5,000, your tax bill. But what if you don't like that outcome? What if they've got you into an installment plan and it only took 30 minutes and that's something you could have done on your own, maybe? You know, there's just so many what if, what if, depending. I think that people don't love uncertainty. It's not always the amount of money. It's the way you find out about the amount of money. Right. And you're saying in different words, what I was just saying, it's a change of work plan. It's mm -hmm. different than what we expected when we started working together. And I think clients really respect that we 
we address that. The fact is we don't control the world and we do our best every day. But when something new comes up, we address it head on and say, hey, we need to reconsider this. This is going to take longer, cost more, cost less, whatever. And I want to go back to this idea of fees, because this is actually kind of where the discussion started for me, because it is something I'm very sensitive to based on like a lot of feedback that I'm seeing online mostly, but also, you know, readers that have sent me notes. Increasingly, there is this discussion about increasing rates, and it's for all the reasons that you've just mentioned, right? Especially at smaller firms, there are external pressures. Maybe you want to focus on one or two clients. Maybe the cost of your staff has increased. Maybe your rent has gone up. Like there's lots of reasons why you might be bumping fees up. Um, And I think people understand that. However, that said, kind of like when I was talking about in the beginning with my restaurant, you know, you start looking at this is the same place I've always been. I really love eating here, but I'm looking at this bill and I'm thinking, you know what? Maybe I don't go every week. Maybe I now go every other week because it's more expensive than it used to be. And I do worry a little, especially on the middle class side, that people who are cost conscious, especially in the current environment where prices are going up for lots of things, food, gas, you know, lots of things much more quickly than wages are climbing, how increases in pricing might affect quality of service for taxpayers. And I'm particularly concerned about, this is sort of something we've you and I alluded to on Twitter, but I, we've seen in, in bigger conversations too, the middle class, because on some level, especially individuals, and I know you focus a lot on small businesses, but individuals, this notion of tax prep as being a bit discretionary, tax advice as being discretionary, what is the point at which the middle class people in the middle class say, you know what, I can't afford my accountant anymore? Or maybe they go to somebody who's not very great because they're cheaper, but maybe not providing a level of service that they really need. I worry about what this does to middle class. And, and I think about that in terms, and, and, and I'd love to hear like what you think about this, but I will tell you the example that I always think about is financial advisors. So you and I are in the same geographic area in the, in the you know, Philly, Jersey area. And when I was starting out as an attorney, I worked for in Center City at at a firm. When I moved out of Center City to work for my own firm, I would have clients that would approach me and they would have like twenty or fifty thousand dollars of liquid assets that they wanted to invest. You know, that's not chump change. It's that's significant, especially for somebody who's worked all their life and they want some direction. And I would call around trying to find someone that I felt comfortable referring them to on the investment or financial advisor side. And routinely, I would be told that they had minimums of two fifty or five hundred thousand liquid before they would even talk to someone, because the investment advisor market in that in that area found out that they made more money, obviously, with wealthier folks. So middle class was kind of subjected to e trade, right? Like figure it out yourself. And so that's what I that's my fear on the tax side. Like I I fear that as prices go up for people of quality, and I get why that's happening. So taxpayers don't need to send me emails explaining what's happening. I totally 100% get it. So I'm not critiquing that it's happening. But my fear is that it's going to turn off people who might need help to using a professional because they feel like they can't afford it. Or again, they go somewhere where it's discounted it's a mill or whatever, and maybe they don't get the attention they, attention they deserve. 
So like, what are you seeing? What are you hearing in that regard? Your story hits home for me. You don't know this probably, but I, I left Wall Street back in 1987, worked under Michael Milliken's firm. I don't even know if uh, oh, younger people that know that uh-huh, name. Yeah, uh-huh. you do. But, uh, I speak with young people now and they don't even usually have to refer to some movie right. before they get it. But in any event, uh, I just, you know, maybe the silliest thing I ever did, but I walked out of Drexel Burnham Lambert because I did not want to serve. I did not want to make rich people richer. Mm-hmm. That was just my core personal value. I wanted to serve business people, ordinary people, and prove my value. And frankly, I thought it was pretty easy there in the 80s and the 90s to, to do that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, and then when the internet came, I was fortunate enough to build tech firm and eventually sold that to a public company. So that was all going well. But now, like you said, it, it is tougher right now. And I, I think it is okay. I don't think it is okay for us to talk about our fees in a conversation like this. I don't want to take any work that isn't a minimum $1,200 fee. I don't even want to write, write up the engagement agreement if it's not a $1,200 fee. And I don't want to take any clients that I don't think are going to be five to $10,000 sustainable on an ongoing basis. So it's, it's not my job to say, okay, this is what I charge for, for the tax return, uh, pay it or, or get tax out. That's not what our job. My job is to ask a client, how can I make myself valuable enough for you so that I can serve as your accountant. Right. That's where it is. That's where the conversation is. And we've talked about that on Twitter, like the value add, but that's a selling point, right? But that's something that tax practitioners aren't doing well, I think. Exactly. And, uh, and I mentioned I have some, some great coaches. Sebastian Mean of uh, Be a Wealthy Expert uh, said to me just yesterday in our coaching session, he said, he said uh, coaching is selling. When you have that conversation and you're asking about how to develop, you are selling. You know, that's, that's enlightenment, really. No, it's true. And we've talked about this. Uh, you know, I've talked about this with fellow lawyers and tax folks. Like, I do think that there's so much emphasis on the, the bottom line, right? Like, how much is my refund? A lot of people, that's what they focus on. So they're not focusing on the extra value that you're bringing. And I do think that that is something that tax professionals don't do well enough. They don't say to a client, like what you're saying, like, let me tell you what I'm doing for you. And then you tell me whether that's worth, you know, let's figure out if that's worth my rate. I think that, you know, this notion that this is what I charge, take it or leave it. I I get the underlying premise, right? Because I'm not suggesting that anybody change their rates, but I am saying exactly what you had just said before, that you do need to sometimes demonstrate to somebody what you're bringing. This isn't just, if you're paying $1,000 for a return, it's not so you can get a $1,200 refund. That's not why you're doing it, right? You're doing it because you need to be tax compliant. You're doing it because you want to think about how can I do planning in the future? What kinds of retirement plan should I be looking at? Should I be messing with my HSA? Like, There's a lot of value that I think tax professionals bring that right. we don't do enough a good enough job explaining to clients. And to extrapolate on that. So if you're, let's say an ordinary, we're talking about middle income, individual client, let's forget about the businesses or other needs, but the very most basic individual client, if you're going to hire a CPA to do your taxes, that almost implies that you're looking for the best of the best to start with. It, I use the term overkill. You know, if an ordinary middle income person using a CPA to do their tax return is probably overkill 
unless you have a good reason for it. And the good reason tends to be, I want to call when I have a question. Right. When something comes up about my investment account, I want to be somebody to talk to. We're talking about this business or this happening, and I want to be able to talk to somebody. So you're paying for the relationship exactly. over the course of the year, not for the tax return. And uh, it's, it's my job, of course, and our job as professionals to sell that concept, not to say it's <laughs> $1,200 for your 1040, and that's, that's the way it is. Right. But what we're seeing, though, and I think you started this, uh, for the, there are so few accountants offering that service anymore, at least, at least from what I can see in my market, that the workload is going, going to be overwhelming. I don't know if it's where this is headed. Right. But at this point, there are far more people asking for that service than the firms that I know of are willing and able to provide. And I do think that those that are willing to do the pivot are going to be successful. And we've seen some of that on Twitter with folks talking about exactly the things you've mentioned earlier, like the video recording and explaining to someone, not just shooting something in the mail to them, but like, here's what your return looked like. And here's what you need to know. And this is what you need to remember for next year. I do think there's a lot of value in that. And I was actually talking about, so I, I, I talked to, I, I told you this, that I had been on um, another call earlier today. And we were chatting and I, I said, you know, I made a mistake recently on my own tax planning. It was something I pushed off into the end and I wanted to throw some money in a retirement account before, before I uh, filed my return. And I didn't consult with my CPA beforehand and I should have, and, um, you know, didn't get as big a tax advantage as I should have. And that's where the value is, right? Like, and I know that if I had asked him, he would have told me like, that's the killer. Like, I'm, I'm so mad at myself. For not bothering, but we're all busy and we all have questions. And even, you know, those of us who do this for a living. And I do think that the people who are successful are going to be the people who are, they're pivoting, they're understanding that the world is changing and that economics are changing. And they're saying, you know, what can I do for you? How can I be valuable to you? Right. And I think I, I may be in the minority in this area. I tell clients, I want them to reach out to me. I referred to that communication paragraph, my engagement. I say, I want you to reach out. I want you to send the text message. It doesn't mean that I'm going to drop everything I'm doing and get right back to you, but I want to keep frequent and informal communications because that's going to bring the best results and a good, stable business relationship. Right. And I think that's the value in using the same person or the same firm too from year to year rather than, again, price shopping is that. I've already asked you these five questions, so you already know what my concerns are. So next year, you're going to be like, oh, that's right. Kelly was worried about her real estate taxes or whatever the thing is, right? Like, I think there's a value in, as you mentioned, like just the relationship. Right. We can either sell the value of that relationship. People either see it or they don't. Not everyone will. Right. And uh, however, what I like, I like the fact that it's not necessarily the 1% that are saying, yeah, I get it. I'm going to hire Tony. It is, there is a good cross section of people who are insightful enough to see the value in a long term professional relationship and, uh, and are willing to pay for that and don't have a problem with the pricing that we need to be sustainable so that my office is open when you right. call next year. Exactly. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. This has been fun. Before we go, as I actually, so you're my guinea pig on this, as I mentioned to you, 
I'm changing up the podcast a little bit, inspired by uh, Gina Furia Rebel, whose podcast on the record I was on, and it was uh, on the record PR. It was great. And she does a little like she, I think she calls it lightning round at the end. And I'm just going to call it a getting to know you segment. Um, but I have a few questions that I'm going to ask you and you just tell me like whatever comes to mind. Um, so there's just a few. Um, and so my first question is, if you could be a character on any TV show, which show would it be? I've, I've always said Tony in The Sopranos. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, no, I, you don't hear that much. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I just, just always related to Tony and I, I love him. <laughs> oh, that's funny. What's your favorite tax code or reg, like section or reg? My favorite is, is 1202, and I just gave an interview yesterday on that. I would love to see more small businesses doing long-term planning to focus on tax-free, qualified small business stock sales. It's not easy. Mm-hmm. Our buddy Tony Nitty has, has promoted this quite a bit, uh-huh. but yeah, I see very few businesses taking advantage of that. What's your favorite book and why? I'm going to go way back for your, your readers. They may not even remember. Michener was my neighbor up in Doylestown. Oh, fun. The Source was my favorite book in my college years that really allowed me to question uh, values, the source of religion, the source of society and economic development and those types of things. Cool. And then finally, Tax Twitter would want to know, pancakes or waffles? So. Because of the health reasons we mentioned before, I'm really, I am completely staying off of carbs and I am really focused on no, no waffles for me. So, uh, yes. Oh, that's fun. Well, thank you so much again for your time today. If folks wanted to find you either on social media or on the web and you wanted to be found, where would you send them? Right. I'm easy to find online, tonynovak.com or at tonynovak. Thank you. And I'll be sure to put those links as well as some others in the show notes so that people can find it as well as the resources uh, that you mentioned earlier. Thanks again so much for being on the show today. Thanks, Kelly. It's great chatting. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be. The number of words in the tax code is estimated to be 1 million about the same length as the entire Harry Potter series. Add in IRS regs, rev rulings, and case law, and it can be a lot. We all need a little help to sort it out. Each week on the Tax Girl podcast, I talk to the best in the business. And these aren't crazy technical dives. They're interesting and easy to digest looks at topics that matter to you. It's all that you need to stay ahead on the most important tax issues. You can subscribe to the podcast for free on taxgirl.com because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't be.